Thanks for joining us. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, sitting in for Diane Rehm. Hillary Clinton gives her acceptance speech at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia, capping off a week that started out tumultuously, but ending on notes of hope and inclusion. On the stage last night, one of the strongest rebukes yet to Donald Trump came from the father of a Muslim-American soldier who died fighting in Iraq. And in news outside the convention, a judge says John Hinckley Jr., the man who shot President Reagan, can be released from jail. Joining us for the Friday News Roundup, Lisa Desjardins of the PBS NewsHour, Naftali Ben-David of the Wall Street Journal, Jeff Mason of Reuters, and Juana Summers of CNN. Thank you to all of you for joining us today. Good to be with you. Great to be here. And we want to hear from you, our listeners. You can join our conversation anytime throughout the hour. You can call us on one 800 433-8850. You can send us your email to drshow at wamu.org, or you can join us on Facebook or send us a tweet to at drshow. All right, I want to start out with the convention last night where we saw the images of Hillary Clinton beaming with emotion as she made history, saying she was happy for women and girls, but also for boys and men, too, because when any barrier falls in America, it clears the way for everyone. When there are no ceilings, the sky's the limit. Juana, you were there. What did that moment feel like? Well, first of all, good morning. Thank you for having me. This was just a really remarkable moment on a number of levels, seeing uh, this is 90-some years after the first woman received a vote for president at a Democratic convention, and to see Hillary Clinton, who has spanned decades of public life, step onto that stage and say that she accepts the party's nomination was quite remarkable. And I think that the the phrase he just quoted was really important because Hillary Clinton's strength, if you look at polling, she does very well with women. She gets a lot of support from them, particularly educated women and white women. But she does have a problem with, with Donald Trump, her Republican rival, when it comes to attracting men. So I think the fact that she warmly embraced the history and the historic moment that she was stepping into but also extend this and said, this isn't just about our American women and girls. This is about making sure that everyone is a full participant in their democracy, that young men and women, our children, can all be swept up into this moment. I think it was really, a really important message and point and a smart one by her team as they drafted this probably the most important speech of her life. What I thought was really interesting was, you know, the I think the strongest speech she's ever given in my mind is the 18 million cracks in the glass ceiling speech, which was actually ironically her concession speech in 2008. But she, of course, establishes this metaphor of the glass ceiling. And last night she brought it full circle, saying when there's no ceiling, the sky's the limit. And I imagine, you know, there were not a lot of dry eyes in the house. Juana, were there. No, they're not. The amount of emotion on supporters' faces, you could really just feel it a lot of tears. And as I scrolled through my Facebook feed last night and this morning, it's, it's interesting because I think that there are a number of, not just Democrats, but independents, Republican women as well, well, whether or not you like Hillary Clinton, don't like her, plan to support her in November or not, I think this is seen as a very important historic moment. This is something we haven't seen in recent history. And I, I don't have kids, but if you have a daughter, she won't live in a country where a, a woman being president is a hypothetical. It's a reality. And I would say that this speech bookended really well. I think it was a natural progression on that glass ceiling speech, which I would agree with you is one of the strongest moments in Hillary Clinton's career. It shows just how her politics have evolved in the last eight years as President Obama's been in the White House. 
and now she looks to become his natural successor. All right. Well, of course, whether that's a reality will depend on whether she wins in November. But, Lisa, mm-hmm. I was struck that Clinton was also in the speech trying to address at least you know, a little bit head on the likability, relatability Mm. critique that has dogged her throughout her career. And she said in her long career of public service, she's always found the service part easier than the public part. I want to know, you know, sure, she definitely seems to strum along with policy more than making inspirational speeches. But does acknowledging that alone dispel the problem that many voters have thinking she's cold? I'm not sure that Hillary Clinton acknowledging that last night solves the problem. But that was the end of a long, well-planned buildup from Democrats over the course of the, the last two days, especially trying to say, here's who she is as a person. Chelsea Clinton's anecdotes about the, mo- the notes her mother left her. And I think also talking about um, Hillary Rodham's family, what her mother learned from her mother's tough struggle growing up, what Hillary Clinton learned about who makes it in life and who doesn't, the values she learned, and even her story about saying, you have to go out and take on bullies. That's what oh my, my mother goodness. told her. You know, and that I, her mother used to yeah. shut the door that's and not let her escape <laughs> the bullet. Don't like come like, back until you figured whoa, this out. Oh, <laughs> that's like some mid-century <laughs> tough love parenting. Right. I was like, I've got a small child, and I was looking at him thinking, oh, my goodness, what happened? Okay. Oh. But oh I think, goodness. but I think that it was part of a bigger narrative. I think Hillary Clinton has has had trouble telling that story herself. She she did it last night, but I think the more the people around her tell that story, the more it will help Democrats in this area. All right. But if I, if I could jump in on Please. that, I mean, I actually do think she missed an opportunity there. I think her mm-hmm. speech didn't address that as much as she could have. And I don't think it would have been that hard. It was interesting that she didn't. I mean, she had this line, I get it. People wonder what to make of me. And then proceeded not to give them any information that would help them answer that question. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of policy stuff. It sounded to me almost a little bit like a State of the Union, and you know, where they feel like they've got to hit every single policy point. But there was very little of talking about sort of, you know, what motivated her inside. How, you know, her daughter brought up this moment when she lost the 94 health care bill. Hillary could have talked about that and what it made her feel like and why she decided to keep on persevering despite that. And instead, she kind of acknowledged the problem and then I thought didn't do anything to address it. See, now, I just, oh, go ahead. Well, Sorry, I was going to say the flip side to that is, you know, she, she acknowledged the fact that she's wonky. And she acknowledged the fact that she gets into the details of policy, and be it health care, be it drug prices, be it uh, air pollution, be it water quality in Flint, Michigan. Uh, and that was deliberately a contrast to Donald Trump. Uh, and I think she probably felt and her team probably felt we've had the husband, President Bill Clinton. We've had the daughter. We've even had President Obama come up and talk about uh, who she is as a person and what motivates her. Tonight, and in this case last night, she needed to show, A, that she is that warm person, but also that she can lead, and that if she gets the job, uh, she has a plan for how to how to proceed. And they, they really wanted that to be a contrast to Donald Trump. You know, I'm struck that as Americans, we somehow expect our mayors and our presidents to open up to us in an emotional way that we don't expect from senators and congressmen, for example. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm thinking, Naftali, about what you said. She, This speech was very seemingly true to who Hillary Clinton is. Her comfort zone is talking about the 10-point policy plan, but that she didn't try to be something that she's not. You know, maybe she figured that's not my that's not my strong suit, so why go there and try to be the soaring oratory? I don't know. Juana, did you hear from her campaign? Um, did they wrestle with that question of whether trying to make her humanize herself or whether to just have her, you know, work in the zone where she's most comfortable, the, the, the detailed policy analysis? 
You know, I, I haven't had a chance to speak to representatives of the Clinton campaign about this, but I, the way that it sounded to me, and after hearing some more of the clips that were played on the morning news shows, is that the, it seemed to me that the campaign orchestrated this in a way where they can see that she has a likability problem. I think it's something like seven in ten voters who say that they believe they don't believe that she's honest or trustworthy, and that's a really hard thing to surmount. So it sounds like they instead have focused on portraying her as someone who is competent and capable to do the job in contrast to a candidate who is a loose cannon who can be who can be moved to excitement and unpredictability just by a tweet. I think they feel like that's where they can win. They, someone said it to me this morning. They're saying, you know, people, they may have concluded that you may not like Hillary Clinton. You may not love her. You may not want to go and have a beer with her, that test that we talk about all the time. But then at the end of the day, they hope that voters understand just that she is capable of doing the job, given her de- her decades of long experience in policy, her service as a senator and a secretary of state. And they hope that that is where they can win these voters over, given the fact that, oh, my God, Hillary Clinton is not an unknown commodity, right? We have been scrutinizing this woman for decades now. She is a household name. So the ability that, like, you would have to change public opinion in a candidate who's less well-known, something isn't there with her. Well, Lisa, let's follow up on that, this whole question of trust. It's not just likability, it's trust. And as Juana says, a majority of Americans' polls show Mm -hmm. don't actually trust her. Um, Can she convince them otherwise? Did she go some way to convincing them last night? Or is she just sort of leaving that issue on the table and attacking on a different front? I think they are nodding toward that issue. They're re- they recognize that issue. But what the Democrats have been doing with this convention, what Hillary Clinton was trying to do last night, was to change the question, you know, to ask a different question and a several questions. One of them, the largest one probably, was national security. And we saw from Republicans on Twitter reacting, saying, I'm hearing things in this speech tonight. I'm hearing about patriotism. I'm hearing about the founding fathers. I'm hearing a vision for America that reminds me of the way we used to talk. Uh, Dick Cheney's former spokesperson said he was in his kitchen crying, (laughs) wondering, how am I weeping at a speech by Hillary Clinton? And he said, what has happened to my party? That's right. And so I think that that is what the Democrats are trying to do. Now, the, the issue, I think, for both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump is we're still talking about their bases. You know, has either one of them really reached the voters in between who are uncertain about both candidates. Well, in the way that some voters don't trust her, she's trying to turn that on yeah. its head and say, well, you shouldn't trust Donald Trump right. with the nuclear codes. Right, Naftali? Yeah, absolutely. There was a lot of that. Um, but also the whole goal of the convention was to create a contrast with the Republican convention, a broader, inclusive, more optimistic message. And I think that's something that they actually did pretty well with a remarkable amount of thematic coherence between the speakers. All right. Well, we are going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to start going to your calls and your questions and comments. So stay with us. There's much more coming up. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. It's news, culture, and 
Curiosities. From the district. Tacoma Park. Alexandria. Friendship Heights. Hyattsville. Falls Church. Northeast Washington, D.C. In your inbox every weekday afternoon. DCS Daily. Sign up at dcs.com slash newsletter. dcs.com slash newsletter. Welcome back. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, Washington columnist for the Boston Globe, sitting in for Diane Rehm. Joining me here today are Jeff Mason, Washington correspondent for Reuters, Juana Summers of CNN, Lisa Desjardins, political director of PBS NewsHour, and Naftali Ben-David, editor and reporter for The Wall Street Journal. We're talking about all the week's domestic news and especially the Democratic National Convention. Jeff, I want to come back to you. We were talking about how the Hillary's speech was very very much a policy speech. Um, Naftali made the point that it was almost like a State of the Union and that she was ticking the boxes of every issue that she had to name for every constituency. What were the biggest applause lines? Um, what do you think was most effective in that laundry list? Well, there, yeah, there were a lot of long, there were a lot of policy issues in there, and they are policies that she clearly uh, has adopted and now believes in. Some of them are shifts from where she was eight years ago uh, and represent where the party is. One of them was on gun control. Uh, she said, I'm not here to repeal the Second Amendment. I'm not here to take away your guns. But I would like to make sure that nobody comes and shoots you who shouldn't have had a gun in the first place. And that was a big applause line. Mm -hmm. Uh, She got applause for saying that she would consider a constitutional amendment to overturn uh, Citizens United. Big, big applause for that in the room. Very wonky, but very important to Money the Democrats. And politics. Money and politics is right. Trade, uh, where some people probably on the left are skeptical of her. Um, she she talked about you know objecting to trade deals that don't work. Um, also very popular with the Bernie Sanders crowd. And she talked um, as well about sort of more populist themes about corporations and Wall Street, uh, saying corporations need to be patriotic too. Uh, and that got a lot. Of, by paying higher taxes. By paying higher taxes. And having yeah. business at home, right? Bingo. And making sure that they're not taking tax breaks um, that are offered by the government and then sending jobs overseas. So that's those are some populist themes, certainly popular with the, the Bernie Sanders crowd, uh, not particularly popular on Wall Street, uh, but ones that that the Democratic Party is embracing. Wall Street, from whom she has, of course, taken money, as have uh, most of the other candidates. Lisa, Mm -hmm. let's delve a little deeper on that foreign policy Mm -hmm. issue, because as you point out, that was a big theme. She tried Mm -hmm. to switch, you know, do the jujitsu of putting the trust, then don't trust him on Donald Trump, particularly saying no nuclear codes. This is a man who says she said that he knows more about ISIS than the generals, and then she takes this dramatic pause and says, no, Donald. Donald, you don't, you know, and it became a sort of laugh line. So, um, you know, she also right. said this thing about you, a man who you can bait with a tweet is not mm-hmm. a man we can trust with nuclear weapons. Did right. that whole approach work? This is, again, trying to change the question to the stakes in this election. The Democrats are arguing the stakes are too high to take a risk on someone like Donald Trump. And, you know, I think that that was, again, part of a longer buildup. She actually talked about foreign policy less than I expected because it had been a question over this convention each day. When are we going to talk about Islamic State? When are we going to talk about the very serious threats around the world right now. And it wasn't really until late last night that we saw uh, General Allen and sort of a more security shift. It was in her speech. She did say what her plan is. But 
it, it wasn't a main focus of her speech. And I think it's still something that we need to watch carefully. Those uh, I think Americans are more nervous about that than you would get from watching this convention. Well, to that point, we have an email from a listener named Millicent who says, what about the impassioned support from the military, especially the retired Marine general? She's talking about John Allen, who was the former deputy commander of um, CENTCOM, who worked with her. I found that he addressed the commander in chief issue head on and very powerfully. She wants us to comment on this. I mean, I was struck by John Allen saying, you know, I'm confident that if Hillary Clinton is president, she won't force us to torture people and she won't treat foreign relations like a business deal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was uh, I thought he was one of the more powerful resonant speeches. First of all, he looks like a guy. If you're envisioning a Marine general, what he'd look and sound like, it was this guy. And so having him speak at a Democratic convention in these kinds of terms, I thought was a powerful message. They were trying to to do throughout the convention, go at the temperament issue with Donald Trump. And yeah, on on the day when I think Donald Trump was again talking about waterboarding, if I'm not mistaken, John Allen talked about how we're not going to let the military be an instrument of torture. And he also said, we are going to be there for our allies, which I thought was a direct shot at Donald Trump, raising the question about whether we'd come to the aid of a NATO ally. So that was a very important uh, message and point that they felt like they needed to fill and that he was the guy to do it. All right. Let's take a call from Peter in San Antonio. Peter, you're on the line. Good morning. Hi. Uh, as I'm listening now, you, you have touched on some of the things, some of the themes that, I, that I'm calling about. But uh, I'm in, in San Antonio. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the print industry as well. And and um, so it seems that, you know, I, I'm a Democrat. I put up with the, the Republican con- conversation last week, the convention last week, so, so I could be informed. So then I listened to uh, the Democratic convention, and it seems like so many – so many critics, uh, including people on the air, they give a, a, a list of what Hillary needs to do, what she needs to talk to in this speech coming up. She needs to be personable. She needs to be humorous. She needs to reach out to the middle class and swing states. So I'm listening last night with the same ears everyone else is listening with, and I hear her do those things. I hear her make jokes. I hear her, her, her be a little lighter than normal. And for a public speaker of her nature, I'm sure that was very difficult. I hear her be humorous. I hear her reach out to, to, to voters in swing states and to middle-class white male voters. And, and, and yet now I hear critics afterwards change those, those lines. Hmm. Well, she should have done this. She should have done this. She should have done this. She's only got so much time. I mean, based on what I hear, she should have spoke for three or four hours. Left. It doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> All it right. Really thank you, Peter. It's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting call. It, he's basically saying that Hillary Clinton's being held to a different standard. She hits all the things that she's supposed to do, but then somehow mm-hmm. the criteria changed. Juana, do you agree with that? I think the caller makes a really good point. I think that he is correct that we heard a much different speech from Hillary Clinton than we are accustomed to hearing from her. I do think that she is more personal than I have heard her been in the years that I've covered her. I think that she did reach out to the middle class. She reached out to independents and those who feel left out of a political process and feel that a system that's rigged. And I do, I believe, though, that she has to continue to do those things. I think that's the point that a lot of the analysis is trying to make this morning. This was one speech in time. It was the, probably the most high-profile speech of her life next to that speech about the cracks in the glass ceiling that we talked about earlier. But And it was highly watched, and it was a speech 
for the base and the room. But convention floors are filled with diehards. They're filled with people who are so engaged in the party process that they are end up elected delegates and they travel from their homes to be a part of an event like this. Those people we know are most likely going to go out to the polls in November. The people that Hillary Clinton needs to reach and to a different extent that Donald Trump needs to reach are the people outside the room, the people who are watching the speech and the race happen, the highlights on cable news or listening to this program or reading about it on the front page of their local newspaper. So she needs to take the themes that we're spoken about in that room. And as she can, given the limited amount of time given on the campaign trail and televised and radio interviews, and bring them out of the arena so that they speak to the people who she hasn't gone over yet. So your point is basically that there are two standards in this case, not just for her, but for any candidate. One is what you say to your party faithful, your diehards, and the other is a different kind of messaging that has to reach those undecided voters who may or may not even be watching on TV, it sounds like. Absolutely. I think that's the case for all candidates. The way you speak to people who already have your back and are already on your team is simply fundamentally different than the way you try to persuade and argue with someone who you haven't won over yet. And I think that's just a rally of politics for any candidate. I, I think the caller also, though, makes a good point about the expectations that were set up for her ahead of time in terms of her demeanor, her ability to deliver a speech like that in contrast or comparison to Barack Obama to Bill Clinton. And she, in many ways, um, I think, met those expectations that had been set. She was confident. She was funny. She laughed a little bit when she talked about um, Donald Trump having spoken for 70-odd minutes and then said, and I do mean odd. And she, you know, <laughs> the, the crowd laughed at that. She laughed at that, which is a strategy that Obama sometimes uses. He'll laugh at his own joke, and then the rest of the crowd will laugh with him. Um, she hit a lot of those notes that some people were not sure she would be able to do. Funnily enough, I noticed on Twitter, though, that a lot of male commentators were saying, smile, Hillary. Why don't right. you relax and smile? And then that started its own Twitter storm of Dead. other people, women saying, don't tell us to smile. You smile. Well, I mean, I think some of this is addressed to me, so I just wanted, wanted to respond. I mean, I do think that, you know, nobody's talking about her sort of pouring out her soul. We know she's competent. Nobody has any questions about that. Even her opponents, I think, respect her experience and what she's able to get done. But there's just no question. There's just no denial that people aren't sure if they can trust her. They feel like she's tightly wound. They feel like she's calculating. They feel like there's a lack of connection. And I think a few lines of, of, of sort of self-recognition, you know, in a in a hour-long speech, I just don't think that would have been that hard. And she's done it in the past. It's one of the things that puzzles me about it. But she said, look, I'm not the kind of natural politician that Bill Clinton and Barack Obama are, you know, but I, but I speak from the heart. There was a moment during a debate in 2008 when she even teared up a little bit. She can do it. And this was a moment to do it. And the audience, sure, there was the audience of a couple thousand people in the convention, but the real audience was the millions of people across the country who, even if they weren't watching it at 11 o'clock last night, were going to see it on YouTube and see it replayed. And I just thought it was an opportunity that she could have grabbed and didn't. Of course, the most memorable moment where she teared up was in 2008 in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, in mm -hmm. that coffee shop where the woman asked her, how do you do it? How do you get through every day? And genuinely, she teared up before saying, you know, I couldn't do it if I didn't believe in this country, et cetera, et cetera. But she, you're right, she didn't seize it no, in this moment. My voice. Yeah, I think we may be splitting hairs a little bit, but I, I actually did hear some of those lines in the speech last night. Now, maybe not, it's a question of priorities. How much time did she spend on those things? I also did hear her talking about wh how, why she is motivated for public service, her concept of a village, whether you like it or not. I heard those things in the speech, and you read them in the speech, but I think it may be more a question of delivery, and it also may be a question of, 
the way people perceive Hillary Clinton obviously could be probably an entire college semester worth of discussion. But I think that there is a difference between Hillary Clinton when she's in a job and Hillary Clinton when she is running for office. And right now she's running for office and her speeches are heard in a different way. She delivers them in a different way. Excuse me. I also think, I mean, there was clearly a lot of emotion there on that stage. There was emotion when she saw... Her daughter, when after Chelsea Clinton made that introduction, uh, and it does seem—I mean—I think the critics, perhaps of 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 the critics, would say, "How can you ask for a candidate to tear up if if that's really the criteria?" Uh, that doesn't make sense either. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, and you're listening to the Diane Reem Show. You can join our conversation by calling 1-800-433-8850. You can send us an email to drshow at wamu.org or find us on Facebook or send us a tweet. Let's take a call from Vicki in Clanton, Alabama. Vicki, go ahead. Good morning. I just want to tell you I love this show. I Great. do not feel like my day is started until I listen to the Diane Reem show. Wonderful. I listen to the... Um, convention last night i tried to listen to last week and i was nauseated most of the time i don't get it why we have to like hillary we didn't have to like nixon we didn't have to like lbj we didn't like have to like daddy bush and baby bush why is it so important that we like her she is so overqualified she works she is diligent she is intelligent she's well prepared why do we need to like her? Okay, Vicky. Vicky raises an interesting question, which has come up many times about whether women politicians are held to a different standard, whether we want mm-hmm. to, we expect a certain behavior from leaders and a different behavior from women. But there was also this with George W. Bush. If you remember against his two opponents, it was he was the guy who people wanted to have a beer with, right, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer to that is um, because many voters use that as a criteria when they go on the voting booth. Um, I think the Clinton campaign would would be delighted that you don't care whether people like her or not, but they're reaching out to people who do care about that. And and that has been, as Indira, as you just said, that has been a criteria that people have used uh, in previous elections, and that's why it's an important and, aspect now. And I think with her, her approval ratings are historically low, and so are Donald Trump's. Likeability is a quit, an issue for him, too. Um, but but for her, it's it's been it's been an issue because her... Her likability factor is so low, and, and people are wondering why is this race so close. Democrats are, don't don't get it, and so they say, "Oh, well, where's the weak point for Hillary Clinton?" They look at her approval rating. I want to read two listener emails here that uh, represent two very contrasting views. Many others like them. Brian says, "I'm sitting here at work, surrounded by liberals, and no one here believes what you're saying or believes in Hillary. It's a crying shame that she got nominated." There's another email from Margaret who says the reason people don't trust Hillary is because Republicans have been trying to convince us that she's untrustworthy since before Bill was even elected. So two very different perspectives. It feels like people are sort of in their corners on that issue. Um, Likewise, Patricia from Charlottesville says that after 55 years of working Democratic campaigns, including at the DNC, she can't vote for Hillary. But the Democratic establishment knows that Trump can't win 
in November, and that's why they're attacking him. All right, so clearly that we may not in this one hour resolve <laughs> the polarized feelings um, about Hillary Clinton that are a quarter century old. There's a wonderful tweet here from Kerry um, that, that I think is really instructive. Kerry says, why aren't you talking about the wonderful speech from the father mm-hmm. of the fallen Muslim American soldier? That speech was gripping. Incredible. All right, Juana, tell us about it. So I I thought that speech was actually the best moment of the Democratic Convention. I would go as far as to say I thought it was a better moment than Hillary Clinton's speech. That father spoke to, I think, the challenges around Donald Trump in a really human, powerful way and just rebuked all of Donald Trump's controversial policies surrounding immigrants. He has talked about building a a wall at the U.S.-Mexican border. He has discussed banning temporarily Muslims from entering the country. And Mr. Khan put a face to that in his son, who proudly fought for this country and spoke really emotionally about that in a way that worked well. And I spoke to a lot of Republicans, actually, last night and this morning, who also said, you know, they teared up during this speech. They saw that speech as a moment of what is so great about this country and and what's so shameful about the fact that their party has nominated a person like Donald Trump who espouses views that they find contra to what it means to be an American. I think it was a really interesting moment. I think the probably the best line of his speech was when Mr. Khan is sitting there and he's talking and he pulls out that constitution that he holds close to his heart and asks Donald Trump, have you even read it? Goes on later to say that Donald Trump has sacrificed nothing and no one. And clearly his son has given the greatest sacrifice that anyone can give. And I think it's just a moment that crosses party lines, obviously a political speech, but by a non-politician that just speaks to some of the very deep divides that have been unearthed in this election. One of the most powerful tweets I saw last night in real time as he was giving his speech was someone tweeting a picture of the gravestone of his mm-hmm. son from Arlington National Cemetery. Um, you know, and he and and as as Mr. Kazir Khan said, you know, I will lend you my copy of the Constitution, Donald Trump. So people really exploded about that. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Chelsea Clinton's speech that was much anticipated. She ended up talking about dinosaurs and bedtime stories and her mother always being there for her. Did she succeed, Naftali? I think she did. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, there there was a a real attempt to, uh, again, humanize her and talk about her as a person. And uh, very hard for somebody, you know, other than a family member to do it in quite the same way. And I think that that it's something she she pulled off very well. We haven't seen a lot of Chelsea recently. And so to some people, this was sort of a revelation. Well, she was pregnant until five weeks ago. (laughs) (laughs) Be fair. All right. Well, coming up, we're going to have more of your calls and your questions. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm Indira Lakshman on Washington Columnist for the Boston Globe, sitting in for Diane Rehm. Joining me are Jeff Mason of Reuters, Naftali Ben-David of The Wall Street Journal, Lisa Desjardins of the PBS NewsHour, and Juana Summers of CNN Politics. We're talking about the convention, and I want to read this email from Amy, who says that for her, the most important and relevant speech was Michael Bloomberg's. He's, of course, the billionaire, former mayor of New York, independent, and former Republican. She says his 
his message was that while he may not agree with Hillary Clinton on everything, it's crucial that we all vote for her to keep the dangerous and monumentally unqualified Donald Trump from winning. And that's a message that needs to be heard. What do you guys think? Well, Mike Bloomberg did a couple things that almost no one else there could do. First of all, he was speaking as an independent. And so he was saying, look, this isn't even between a Democrat and a Republican. It's between a reckless person and a sane person. Those are terms that he used. But I thought even more than that, the fact that he himself is a self-made, successful businessman, multi-billionaire, he can sort of take on Trump in his own terms. So when he says, you know, Trump says he wants to run the country the way he runs his own business, God help us. That's not sort of a Marco Rubio saying it or Hillary Clinton. It's somebody who has done what Trump says he values, that is to say, outside of government, build up this extremely successful business. So I thought his speech actually was a very important one, one of the more important ones at the convention. Okay, I want to remind our listeners that you can watch our entire conversation as well as listen to it, if that appeals to you, online at drshow.org. You know, Juan, I want to ask you, one of the most important things to close out this week that began really tumultuously was bringing everybody into the tent. And Clinton made Mm -hmm. an appeal directly to Bernie Sanders. She said, I want you to know I've heard you. Your cause is our cause. Did the Feel the Burn supporters hear her, Juana? I think certainly some did. You had some folks that I spoke to in Philadelphia who said, that they're glad that they stuck with their candidate all the way through the convention, but now they want to turn their focus to making sure that Donald Trump, as Michael Bloomberg said, is not elected president in November. That said, there are still quite a few Bernie Sanders supporters out there, both that I spoke with in Philadelphia and that I'm seeing on social media over the last few days who aren't buying that. I was on another program with a Vermont delegate who is a supporter of Bernie Sanders, and she said something really interesting to me. She said that she rejects the fact that she's being told to vote for Hillary Clinton, who she does not support, who she does not respect, out of fear of Donald Trump. And she didn't really like the fact that she felt like Clinton supporters were trying to chide her and saying, you must be scared of a Trump presidency, so you should vote for Hillary Clinton. So, But I think that ultimately you're probably polling shows that a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters are likely to support Hillary Clinton in November. Our most recent poll put the number of Sanders supporters somewhere in the 80 percent mark that would support Hillary Clinton. So I think that you're hearing from a a vocal number of people who will not vote for Hillary Clinton in any way, shape, or form. They're not interested. And something I'd be interested to see explored more that I haven't seen yet is how many of those people are people who have been Democrats and voted Democrats in the past, and how many of those people are independents that Bernie Sanders duly brought into the political process Hmm. with his very populist campaign. Interesting. All right. you know, I, I wonder about that, but I, I also wonder about this question of, um, you know, she's made this appeal. She's still facing the boos and the chance of liar that are coming from the crowd there. You know, we have one listener who tweets us. His name is Chris. And he says, if Hillary Clinton would just own up to some of her snafus and say she was wrong, it would go a long way to repairing her image. Well, Hasn't she already done that? I mean, she said her Iraq war vote was wrong. She said the emails were a mistake. Is the problem that she doesn't do it quickly enough, that it takes her too long to get there, Lisa? I think there's a spectrum of how much different people want to hear. And I think you've heard that in what Neftali and I have been saying today. Uh, You know, has she done that enough? I I don't know. You know, I, I do think there's a sense that Hillary Clinton, especially in the email issue, 
put off and did not want to apologize, did not want to admit wrong for a long time. I think that's still hovering. I think that's still a taste in people's mouths uh, that maybe this is what that tweet is about. Um, But I think back to the Bernie Sanders question and this idea of what happens to the Sanders supporters, I heard an interesting pivot. I heard Sanders supporters in the last day, some that I talked to, some that I heard in coverage, say, we now think our job is to keep Hillary Clinton um, in this direction. We, we're we going to support her, but we're also going to be the ones sort of watching her. Now, not every Sanders supporter is pivoting that way, but that's a way that I think these Sanders supporters who don't feel entirely comfortable are trying to reckon their own shift and, and say, hey, actually, maybe this can be consistent. Uh, not all of them, but I think that's something Democrats are probably happy to hear. All right. Also, I mean, this is the single most raw moment, Mm -hmm. arguably, for the Bernie Sanders people. It's this convention, this moment, where they hoped their man would be nominated, and instead Hillary was nominated. Three months from now, things might feel very differently after three months of campaigning by Sanders, by Clinton, by Elizabeth Warren, by a lot of people. Uh, So the way it feels right now isn't necessarily the way it's going to feel to some of these folks on November 8th. All right. Well, we can't possibly review every single speech of the last (laughs) week, but for a couple of the highlights, Jeff, um, I know you were there in the room for uh, President Obama's speech. Um, I'd love to hear what you think his most effective lines were. I think his the White House before that speech told us it would not be a valedictory speech, that it would be about Hillary Clinton. Um, they also told us, and this was kind of an interesting little bit of color, that after watching his wife's speech on Monday night, which went over so well in the, in the room, uh, that the president promptly stayed up until 3.30 a.m. working on his. Eating his seven almonds. Eating his almonds. <laughs> As we know from right. the New York Times that he limits himself to, although he has come out and said, is, no, I'm willing to eat more than seven that's almonds. That's right. He's shed a little bit more light on his snacking habits since then. But he, he obviously worked pretty hard on that speech, and it was also interesting that it was um, 12 years to the day from the 2004 uh, speech that he gave at the at the Democratic convention that really launched his career and and put him on the uh, on the national stage. So his you know his he also worked hard or tried to work hard to um, assuage people's concerns about Hillary Clinton. He, he gave a testimony to what he had seen uh, working with her and and the competition that they had. Um, but, you know, and a lot of the other lines that were popular were about his record and what he had done, even though that wasn't necessarily the uh, the main readout that uh, the White House wanted people to take from his speech. But there was a lot of excitement in that room when President Obama came on the stage. And the symbolic gesture of um, him sort of passing the torch to Hillary Clinton when she walked out on the stage, I think the first time that she was on the stage during the uh, Democratic convention like that, uh, was also very moving to people in the crowd. And the Vice President Joe Biden, of course, a Scranton boy, originally from not so far from Philly, came onto the stage to the theme from the iconic movie set in Philly, Rocky, you know, the fight song. I kind of thought that would have been a good choice for Hillary instead of that, you know, constant Katy Perry and the This Is My Fight song. But anyway, he took that song and he came out fighting for Hillary. Was he effective, Naftali? And are we going to see him on the campaign trail? I think definitely uh, yes to both. I mean, he he came up with a line that's been quoted since that Donald Trump just takes way too much pleasure in the phrase, you're fired, and what kind of a person is this? And it was a bit of a rhetorical device, but I thought a pretty effective one. Uh, And and I thought that President Obama, too, was, was fairly effective in sort of saying... Trump talks about a lot of people as being un-American. He's really the one who's un-American. His approach of elect me and I'll solve all your problems for you is not what the country is about, I think was the point. The I alone.
alone can fix it. Right. Exactly. And so, so he said, you know, he said, we're not looking to be ruled, which I thought was an interesting take the on it. The president said The president said that. And he also had this line, anyone who threatens our values, whether fascist or communist or jihadist or homegrown demagogue, meaning Donald Trump, uh, can never succeed or something like that. So he was sort of framing Trump as one in a long lines of threats to the American way of looking at the world and the American approach. And so I thought that was effective, too. And in general, this is a very well choreographed um, convention. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but people had their roles to play. And by and large, they, they played them very well, I thought. Well, you know, you mentioned Donald Trump, and of course, he did not um, take lightly to being out of the spotlight. He made sure that even though it wasn't his convention week that he was tweeting, he was having press conferences, he was holding forth live on TV. And one of the things that he talked about the most was this incredible story this week, this kind of 21st century Watergate burglary, except this time it's not being done by the Republican Party against the Democrats, but by a foreign adversary against the Democrats if what U.S. officials say that the Russians were behind it, hacking and releasing the emails of the DNC. Now the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee has this morning publicly confirmed that they also have been hacked and an investigation is going on into that. What did Mm -hmm. you think of Donald Trump's remarks when he was asked about this. This was at a press conference, and he said it was very Trumpian in that he was you know, gave his statement that I think perhaps he had thought about beforehand, and then he kept talking. And, and I think through that, at the end of this, he said, Russia, if you're listening, you know, I hope you find those 30,000 missing emails referring to Hillary Clinton's personal emails that were deleted before the State Department investigation. Hope you find them. If you do, I believe our press will reward you mightily. Now, is that legal to (laughs) to call on a foreign government to hunt down a a candidate, an opposition candidate's emails? There is a debate over where this falls in in sort of the definition of of treason or inviting treason. Um, But Donald Clinton, Donald Clinton, geez, Donald Trump has and his campaign have said that, that he was joking. Can't you people take a joke? I was just, you know, but but. However you see it, it was certainly a cavalier thing to say, and it has certainly brought attention to that aspect of Donald Trump at a time when the Democrats are more than happy to talk about, here's a man who says things in the moment that may not be good for the country. Well, this is a he man who, think them out. who has spoken admiringly of Vladimir Don't, Putin, yeah. and when he held um, his beauty pageant in Moscow, he tweeted, maybe he'll come visit me and he'll become my new best friend. And people are using that against Donald Trump. The now. Trump campaign does say that it, Donald Trump himself says, I don't admire him, but I have he has spoken admiringly of his leadership qualities. Now, mm-hmm. if that's an important difference, that, that's, that's a debate. But he he says there's, there is a big difference there. We've gotten several listener emails from people who want Donald Trump banned from U.S. intelligence briefings until his ties to Russia are cleared up. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, and you're listening to The Diane Reem Show. Is there any possibility that might happen, Jeff? Could they ban a candidate, or are the briefings that they give so general in any case that if he has some ties to Russia that we don't know about, that it wouldn't be relevant? I think it's hard to imagine them banning it. I also think it's not necessarily a topic that the Hillary Clinton campaign wants to bring up, because there were also calls for her not to receive intelligence briefings as a result of her handling of classified information with her emails. So I suspect they'll want that piece to to sort of be brushed aside. But the the other issues that came up at that Trump press conference also related to Russia. He kind of left the door open to accepting Crimea as being mm-hmm. uh, Russian territory, which uh, flouts U.S. and European policy. 
Uh, and he did, you know, despite coming back the day a day later saying, oh, I was being sarcastic, he did essentially encourage cyber espionage from uh, a foreign country. And that, you know, those comments um, were very, very unusual. All right. Well, another big story this week that we can't forget, the remaining charges were dropped in the criminal case against police officers in the death of Freddie Gray in Baltimore. It was, of course, a case that highlighted the nationwide clashes between police and African-Americans. Juana, what's your take on the dropping of those charges? Well, first of all, just to be full disclosure, I actually live in Baltimore, so I have been watching this story, but I actually moved to Baltimore the weekend of the the uprising and the revolts in Baltimore after Freddie Gray's death. So I lived there for the last year and a half. And I think that for a lot of Americans, and particularly black Americans who live in Baltimore, what I'm hearing is a lot of resignation. A lot of folks I talked to, including Dorea McKesson, the mayoral candidate, who's been tweeting about this and talking about it rather openly, is that people weren't surprised, especially after you saw that the, there was a hung jury in one trial. Other trials did not result in any sort of conviction. They were unsurprised by this. But this is one of the most high-profile cases of someone trying and State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby quickly moving to charge these police officers in Freddie Gray's death. And so I think there was some hope that perhaps there would be some sort of justice among activists in Baltimore. They were hoping to see that hasn't happened. Um, the victims of violence and police brutality have been in the spotlight this to bring it back to politics this campaign cycle. We saw that at the DNC with Hillary Clinton bringing up the mothers of the movement who have campaigned on her behalf, who have lost children to an acts of violence connected to police as well. The nation obviously focusing on this quite a bit more. We've had the, de- the horrible deaths of officers in Baton Rouge and in Dallas. So I think that how this conversation continues as both candidates are looking to talk about police brutality, to talk about the, the conflict of race in America right now, it's going to be really interesting. And I'm looking forward also just to see how Baltimore continues to grapple with what ha- what did happen with Friday night. The prosecutors seem to have blamed the Baltimore police, saying that they mishandled the case, um, didn't serve search warrants, and that this basically made it impossible for them to be prosecuted. It's um, what I mean, have we got the inmates guarding themselves in this, you know, metaphorically? What What's the situation here? Yeah, I, you know, it's not really clear to me how that how that is going to play out. There is some, I guess, shaking of heads among people who do believe the police did something, who believe that the police did act improperly and perhaps that a crime is committed. But these cases are, as some legal experts are saying, are just really hard to try and really very hard to convict on. I think wrapping this together, this this ties into what we've been talking about, the Democrats versus the Republicans in these two conventions. Donald Trump, if we, we can talk just like the speeches, but overall, Donald Trump is saying and Republicans are saying we have a law and order problem in this country. They look at this and they see disorder. Democrats look at what's happening with these uprisings, whether it's police who are concerned or Black Lives Matter are concerned. They're saying, no, these are American values and we need to have a conversation as a group about these things. They're two very different visions of how to deal with a difficult time. All right. Last issue that's taking us back um, many years in history. John Hinckley Jr., the man who tried to assassinate President Ronald Reagan in 1981, has been ordered by a federal judge to be released. Naftali. He has been. We should add that there are a lot of restrictions in that release in terms of his travel, in terms of his use of the Internet and so forth. And so, he's going to yeah, live with his mother, he's right? He's going to live with his mother, and uh, and he can only travel you know, certain distances depending.
depending on what he's trying to do and, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, on the one hand, 35 years later, it's the closing of what was a very traumatic chapter in American life. But it's also a reminder of how much that event changed things. The whole use of the insanity defense completely changed after that. Um, there, you know, presidential security, the Brady uh, push for handguns, even celebrity stalking was something you didn't hear about as much before that. And then with John Lennon and then with Jodie Foster being part of the Reagan thing, you heard more. Meaning so, he was stalking Jodie Foster as well. He, he was. And I believe he was, her. He yeah. was wanting to impress her with those Both, uh, both. Shots, and yeah. and so it was, a, in many ways, a turning point. And so this is an mm-hmm. opportunity to kind of look back and remember maybe even more than was apparent at the time uh, how much that did change things. The DOJ is reviewing the ruling. Reagan's friends and family are outraged. Yeah, and and I, I think that there's there's also concern in the community. Um, that said, it's important to note that he has been um, able to go spend time with his mother. I think 17 days out of the out of every month from the psych- psychiatric hospital mm-hmm. where he was uh, been, where he had been staying for some time now, and this is not a surprise. And then the judge did say that he was no longer a danger to himself or to others, uh, and that's why he's being released. And that he hasn't been a danger for 20 years, the judge said. For some, yeah. yeah. All right, I want to quickly read a short email from Frank who says there are more silent Hillary supporters than you realize, especially the Bernie supporters want to talk about their political leanings. The rest of us don't, but we're here and ready to vote for Hillary. And on the other side, Lance, who says, I'm a Bernie supporter and the people who are refusing to play along, actually, he says um, they have valid concerns and they're not just a bunch of ridiculous idiots. All right. Well, thank you all for listening and for your calls and comments. And thank you to Jeff Mason of Reuters, Lisa Desjardins of the PBS NewsHour, Naftali Ben-David of the Wall Street Journal, Juana Summers of CNN. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, and this is The Diane Reem Show.